I don't know if you've uh, noticed recently, but uh, things are more expensive. Have you noticed that? Um, it's not just expensive things that are expensive. Now it's the regular things uh, that are expensive. Um, bird seed. I'm an avid bird feeder guy. Uh, my wife tells me that makes me old. Um, I don't think that's true. I just think that makes me... No, she's right. It makes me old. That's what, that's what older people do is what I'm told. So I'm just fitting in. I love it. Um, but bird seed's expensive. Um, uh, so we're thinking of rationing the birds, uh, feeding them. You can't do this with your kids, of course, but, you know, we're thinking of feeding them, you know, every four or five months now rather than, you know, every day like we used to because bird seed's expensive. Um, food's expensive. Um, it's gotten more expensive just to buy eggs and milk and bread and cheese and the regular things. Gas is more expensive. Um, just getting around costs more. Seems like everything's expensive. Um, however, um, just because something's expensive doesn't mean that we shouldn't have it. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't purchase it. It just means that we have to make decisions on what we buy actually having some internal value, some value to us, right? That makes sense. We don't want to spend money on things we don't need. We don't want to spend money on things we don't want. So how do we make sure that when we buy things, when we buy expensive things, not uh, inflation uh, inflated, if that makes sense, not artificially inflated from inflation things, but the regular things, how do we decide that those things are something that we should purchase? When something's expensive, we must ensure that there's value because of the amount that we're spending in order to have it. Does that make sense? And would you agree that some people make really bad decisions about what is valuable? Does that make, does that make sense? I mean, it's not us, say amen. It's other people. Don't, don't say amen to that. Um, but you may have some rules about how do you decide what is valuable? Um, what, are some, what are some rules that you have to say, oh, that's worth having, I know it's expensive, but I'm going to get that, versus, oh, that's not something, I'm not going to get that, that's too expensive, it doesn't have the right value. What are some of the rules that you have in your home, in your family, in your marriage, uh, or your parents have? Like, what, what are the rules to decide whether you're going to buy something that is expensive? How do you decide what is valuable? What do you do? It's something you're going to use all the time. Absolutely. That's a great question. Or a great, uh, a great uh, framework. What else? Talking to the spouse. Yes, making an agreement together. You know, there's so much strife in marriages that comes from money. And when one person is the bean counter and sits down to reconcile the books at the end of the month and goes, ah, oh, where does all the money go? It really helps to deflate those tensions when everyone's kind of on the same page. And you can fight about whether something should be purchased, but needing to fight after something's purchased is a whole different statement. And I mean fight in a good way, because you'll always have those disagreements on what's valuable. But that's what we're trying to crowdsource today, is what do you think helps you decide value? What are some of the personal rules that you have? What about uh, online? Do we have anyone who said anything online that has uh, um, 
uh, share anything. You're welcome to type in an answer. Let us know what you think. What gives something enough value that you'll buy it even if it's expensive? Sleep on it. Absolutely. There are a number of folks that I know, and this is one of the rules that we mostly follow in our family, is that if it's an expense over a certain amount, whether it's $100 or $200 or $300, you don't purchase it until you've had time to think about it. So, especially if you have that chronic shopaholic problem, right, where you see something and think, I want that, and the amount goes to a certain total, uh, not only will I talk to Krista, but I will also sleep on it most of the time. I mostly follow that rule. Uh, that, is a, that is a great rule. That's one of the ones uh, we have as well. What else? One of my other personal rules is if it has the word brisket in it, I'm buying it. Um, anyways, um, here's one that I think is most helpful to decide whether something's valuable even though it's expensive. I want reviews. I want to know it's going to do what I want it to do, and is it going to exceed those expectations? Now, if you've ever read any reviews, you know there's a problem with reviews, right? Companies can buy them. Companies can uh, coerce people. Friends will promote a product for another friend even though they don't use that product. So, I won't just look for a large number of, of reviews, although that's one of the uh, things that I will look for, is how many stars does something get uh, on a review site, and how many people gave those stars. I will look for that. But I will also look for the expert reviews. One time, um, Krista's hair dryer broke, and you know my wife, she has uh, shoulder-length hair. Sometimes it's longer, rarely is it shorter, but she keeps it about that length. And ladies, you know that one of the uh, worst things to do in a morning when you have long hair to get ready for work and get out the door is to sit for 20, 30 minutes drying your hair, especially when it's long. It's terrible uh, to have to do that. You're thinking, man, I should just go bald. I should go full Sinead O'Connor. I should just get rid of it all, and I should, you know, not even have to worry about shampoo, let alone drying my hair. Well, Krista's hair dryer broke. It's getting old, uh, needed a new one. So we started to look around, and we learned that the vacuum cleaner company, Dyson, makes a hair dryer. Did you know that? A hairdryer company, it, it still blows air, it doesn't suck air off, hair off your head in order to dry it, but they make a hairdryer, and it's expensive. It is hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But every review I read, and there were many, because I was amazed, okay, so how does this work? How does a vacuum cleaner company make, make a, a hairdryer? That's like saying, I'm going to go to Home Depot and get the you know, shop vac, to make me a hair dryer because they just have to turn the, the air around and you're good. I mean, how, how, how bad could that be? But everyone's reviewing the Dyson really, really well. And it's got a number of reviews. It says it cuts down the time it takes to dry your hair in half or more. And I went, you, come on. I mean, we own a Dyson vacuum. We've owned a Dyson vacuum for years. It has lasted as long as I think our son has been alive, so it's been a long time since we've had this vacuum, but a hairdryer? How can I know for certain it really works? Despite all those reviews. Do you know what I did? I went to Krista's hairstylist. 
Krista's been going to the same hair salon for years, and Krista and I, uh, Josh and I both go there now, and I don't know what they do, but um, anyways, they do it. And Krista goes there. She loves this person. Um, her name's Marissa. She's fantastic. And we have a great relationship with her. And I said, Marissa, you got to help me. I have learned that there is a Dyson hairdryer, and Krista needs a new hairdryer, but it's so expensive. Is it worth it? And she just goes, yes, absolutely yes. And she walks me over to her booth, to her uh, station where she's cutting hair, and she shows me the hairdryer. She bought it for work. And do you know how many uh, uh, haircuts she has to give? Do you know how many styles she has to do? All of the different cuts and colors and all those things. She had one. And she said, this thing is amazing. It saves me so much time. It's cool to the touch. It doesn't burn out. It lasts forever. This is amazing. Now, I tell you that not because here's an ad for a Dyson hairdryer Go get it yourself. Here's my affiliate code. I'm not, I'm not asking uh, you to do that. I bring this up because the way that we view things and value things always comes with how much will it cost me. And that's not just true for our material life, but our spiritual life as well. We all come to a relationship with Jesus we come to what God is asking us and we say, what will this cost me? I bring this up because there is something that we think as Christians, we feel that it might be too expensive and it's a spiritual thing. It's the spiritual discipline and practice of confession. It's one of the things that um, we struggle to do because we think the cost will be too high. And the way it works with confession is that if we think that people will think less of us if they learn about a sin that we have committed or a sin that we struggle with, a habitual sin that kind of has locked into our lives over the years and some months are really good and some months not so good. It is interesting how many people will hide it rather than confess it. They'll cover it up rather than give it over to God. We just think it's easier because then people don't know, right? And so we struggle. We struggle with pornography, particularly men, but these days that's not exclusive to men. We struggle with alcoholism. We struggle with drug addictions. We struggle with um, workaholic, being a workaholic. Um, and we think it's easier to hide those things because of the way people might think of us. In other words, hiding it is cheaper. It's easier. It's too expensive to confess. Maybe it's too hard to change. Maybe you're afraid of change. 
Maybe you're afraid of what other people will know, but confession is too expensive. Repentance is too expensive. And all I want to ask is this, is that actually true? Not by saying, here's what happens to you if you don't repent, but rather by showing you what happens when you do. You know how we can know this? I mean, you know we're going to turn to the Bible in a second because, well, we're in church and I'm the preacher and, of course, we're going to turn to the Bible in a second. But we can actually use the same model of turning to the experts that we would use if we were purchasing something material, something that was expensive. We can turn to an expert who understand what it means to confess their sin. And I think one of the best people that we find in the Bible is a man named David. David was a capital S sinner. He spent most of his life being so transparent through the scriptures, through the Psalms, saying, here's my struggle with sin. Here's my struggle with other people's sins. We know one of the most famous stories about David is the story of David and Bathsheba, right? A story where he's the king, he sees someone else's wife bathing on the roof, he invites her over, they sleep together, she gets pregnant, and for him, uh, for David to cover it up, he sends the husband who fights in the army to the front line of a battle, instructs his men to pull back at a difficult time in the fight so that the husband is left on his own without support, and he's murdered. And David thought he got away with it, except Nathan comes and confronts him, and there's just terrible consequences, and David's not really ever the same. Um, but David was an expert. He told us he was. And he says this about the difference between hiding sin and confessing sin. If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm 32, and we're going to take a look at the first two verses. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to put the verses up on the screen for you, but I encourage you, this is rapidly becoming one of my most favorite psalms, and I can't wait to, to share um, what God is saying here. But look at what David's learned about uh, confession versus hiding sin. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Not that he's hiding them, but that someone who's had their sins covered, paid for, the debt's gone, that's a blessed person. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. What David's writing about is just the joy of knowing about confessing hidden sin, habitual sin, sin that he personally struggles with. And he says right up front, this is why covering it up won't work, because the Lord will hold you to account for the sins that you have on your shoulders when you walk into eternity. And if you go through life as a Christian as one of God's people saying, I'm okay when you're not. That's deceit. That's saying to God's people and to God, I'm okay 
I'm good. Don't worry about it. I don't need to confess that. That's just a struggle that I have, or I've never really dealt with this habitual thing that I keep asking for forgiveness for and then just fall right back into. I've never made true repentant changes. That's trying to deceive the Lord. And David just says, you know, blessed is the person who doesn't have to worry about that. He says up front that repentance is better. And he says it up front because you end up paying more for hiding it. You may not do it now. You may think it's okay. You may think you get away with it. You may think it's not a big deal. But it will come to an account. For David, he knew that the fact that we try to hide our sin is just dumb. It's like sticking our heads in the sand as an ostrich. You can still see the ostrich. Just the ostrich can't see anything. And we don't need any more ostrich Christians in the world. What he says is, it's not actually hidden. It will be found sooner or later. It may happen in your lifetime. If your sin is found out, something that you were hiding. And David's going to say that that's a good thing. Because if it happens after your lifetime, if it happens after there's nothing you can do about it, mm, No, he calls the person blessed who confesses their hidden sin. It was too expensive for David to hide sin. It's too costly for him. It's too expensive for anyone. Now, if you grew up in church, you're automatically thinking, well, of course, I believe confession's better. Confession's good for the soul. You've probably heard that, right? But did you know confession's not just good for the soul? It's good for the rest of your life. It's good for all of life. What happens when you and I confess sin rather than hiding it? Two amazing things happen. We read in verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. This is David saying to the Lord. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. When we confess our sin rather than hide our sin, God fully forgives us. Fully. He doesn't say, well, that wasn't too bad, so I forgive that, but that's really terrible, and I'm not going to forgive that. Whatever the sin is, no matter how many times that has been a struggle for you, no matter what it is that is holding you back, if you confess that to God, God forgives you completely. He forgives fully. And what David is describing here is a way that God demonstrates His great love. It's not always that um, the elders of our church get called to go and uh, practice laying on of hands and praying for healing for someone. It is um, a biblical command. I think it's something that if you are sick and are facing um, 
medical challenges that um, just don't seem to be getting any traction, you don't seem to be making any move ahead, it is, you are more than welcome to call for the elders and ask them to come and lay hands on you and anoint you with oil and pray for you like Ephesians, uh, Ephesians like James 5 says. However, I want you to know that when the elders come, when we come, one of us is going to ask you a question. Is it possible that the Lord's hand is heavy on you, giving you this illness because he wants to bring something that you need to confess to your mind? Is there anything that God might want to do in your heart spiritually, in your soul spiritually, before he does something in your body physically? God does that. God does that to bring sin to our mind, to help us to understand that sin is serious because he doesn't want us to show up in eternity with unconfessed, unpaid for sin. And David experienced that. He was sick. I don't know if it was a mental illness, a physical illness. My guess would be it's a physical illness that just weighed him down. His strength was gone, but it could have been uh, perhaps something that was happening if it is, if this psalm is written from the David and Bathsheba story, um, a lot of scholars are kind of torn on that, but if it's written from that, um, the end of the story is that uh, David um, was told that he would lose his child that he was having with Bathsheba as a consequence of his sin. And David pleaded with God day and night that that wouldn't happen. That could make him ill, physically ill, just from the emotional weight of what was going on in his family. But I don't know. Because he confesses his sin to the Lord. And immediately, the relationship is restored. When we ask for God's forgiveness, God immediately restores a broken relationship right at this moment. Even the hidden sins that we don't want other people to know about, the one that God obviously knows about because He's going to hold, hold us to account for them in eternity, we can confess those things and the guilt is gone. Sin's debt has been paid for. That's what we talked about this morning, that Easter isn't just last Sunday, Easter's every Sunday. We have a risen Savior, and He has paid for our sins, and when we sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You will survive God's inspection of your life. You will have His protection and His promise of deliverance. And David looks back at life and sees how the heavy hand of God is actually a sign of God's grace to his life. I love that. When we confess our sin, when you confess your sin, the guilt is gone. You are forgiven. You are freed from the guilt and shame. What a liberating moment. What a joy to know that no matter what we've done, no matter how often we have done it, we can bring that to the Lord. No matter how many times we stumble, no matter how many times we fall into sin, we can confess that to God and He immediately restores us into fellowship, relationship. As long as we don't act in deceit. 
like a child who was told over and over again, don't play football in the house. I'm not speaking from experience. I just heard this happens in other families. Don't play football in the house. And then the child breaks a lamp because they're playing football in the house. The parents know that the lamp is gone. But there's a brokenness in the home, right? The child doesn't want to speak to mom and dad, doesn't want to see mom and dad. They hide, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. When they sinned, they want to hide. But when they come forward and say, Mom, Dad, I didn't do what you asked me to do, and I'm deeply sorry. I want to do whatever it takes to make it right. There may be some punishment, right? The parents may say, well, you have to buy a new lamp, or you, know, you have to uh, you know, do some other chores in order to pay off uh, a lamp. But you know, every parent is thinking, I am so glad you told me. I am so glad you came to me without me having to come to you and confront you. We love it when our kids come to us without deceit and say, yeah, that was me. I confess I did it. Not, I didn't do it because there's a brokenness in the home. And when your child does that, when they come and say, that was me, I was wrong, I did it, will you forgive me? The relationship is no longer strained, there's no longer distance, it's now close, it may be even closer, because that child knows that they've been forgiven, and that parent knows that their child, even though they sinned, even though they sinned, they're trustworthy. Um, I think that pain is worth the gain. Amen? I think that pain is worth the gain. I've been saying for the last few weeks that um, I've been having some trouble with my hip. Um, so much so it was tough to get in and out of a car for a while or I would roll over in bed and I would, my foot would catch on a, a blanket. You know, it would kind of drag later. And it would just pull something and it would wake me up to the sound of three octaves coming out of my mouth um, as I cried out in pain. Um, it got that bad because I didn't do anything about it when it was just an annoyance. See, it happened sometime before Christmas and then around the new part of the year. It seemed to be a little bit better, but then it got worse and worse as January and February went through and I didn't go and see the doctor until March. So, in order to help it heal, I needed a cortisone shot and some physical therapy. And the physical therapy hurts. It hurts, it, at the time, it hurt to be able to just turn my foot to the side and put them uh, perpendicular to each other, put my two feet uh, perpendicular to each other. Um, it hurt to try and put weight on it and run and take a full stride, and now it's starting to get better. But I had to do the hard work of physical therapy. And the hard work of physical therapy is actually what made it better. What is worth living with more? The guilt, the pain of the guilt, the separation from your heavenly Father, or the confession, the trust that that brings, the closeness, the immediate renewal of the relationship because there's nothing between you anymore. David knew that. David knew that when, we, when he confessed his sin, God fully forgave him. 
And when we confess our sin, God fully forgives us. But get this, God's not done. And that's not an infomercial. That's not, and wait, there's more. If you sign up today, we're also sending you this free knife that cuts through these cans. It's amazing. God doesn't do that. God's not done. And let me show you what else happens when we confess our sin. David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in Him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. David immediately turns around and starts to get involved in ministry. He starts to teach others. He starts to warn them about God is going in a particular direction. And if you want, you can be like a horse that needs to be driven in a particular direction through bit and bridle. And that's not fun. Or you can listen to Him. And so He's giving all of this instruction. And what that means is, when we confess our sin, God doesn't just fully forgive us. When we confess our sin, God chooses to fully use us in spite of our sin. God will, in His time, give you the ministry that He wants you to have. Regardless of the past that you have, you will be an instrument of God's will and God's kingdom, no matter what you have done in the past. When you confess your sin, God can use you. And it's so good that God can even use your sin for the good of those that love Him. That's amazing. David's potential for ministry was restored when he confessed his sin. Let's face it, this is the king, right? If the king takes another man's wife, kills the husband to cover it up, would he still be king? Would not the priest come and say, you're done? No. David continued to be king for the rest of his life, and he continued to have valuable ministry. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the best. But God was still willing, and God still wanted to use him. That's our potential as well. The story is filled, or the Bible is filled with stories like that all through Scripture. Like Peter. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, is pulled aside before Jesus leaves and told to feed my sheep. And did God use Peter? Did God end up using Peter? After Peter denied him three times, and I don't know the man, did God use Peter for effective ministry? Of course He did. Absolutely He did. He started the church as the Holy Spirit used one message, and suddenly 3,000 people were saved. The story of Paul. Paul was not a good man. Paul thought he was being a righteous man, but was trying to kill Christians for heresy. He was going around from town to town and city to city, rounding them up and putting them in the jail where they may never have gotten 
out again. And he was willing to divide families. He was willing to go out of town, out of state, go as far as possible in order to get them. And he has an encounter with Jesus. He goes blind for a time. And when he comes back, he starts preaching that Jesus has risen from the dead. And nobody believes him. Frankly, if the guy who was killing everyone showed up in our midst and said, uh, I'm a changed man, we also might have some questions. We'd say amen and maybe have a couple of big burly guys sit right beside them. Right? That's, that's what you do. But not God. Did Paul do anything for the kingdom of God? How about planting most every church in the New Testament that we know of, going all the way to Rome, a complete and utter life change. He's not kidding when he calls himself the chief of sinner. He's not trying to, you know, demote himself and make himself look more humble. He is saying, look what I used to do, and now look at how God's using me. Because he confessed. He said, I'm wrong. Jesus is right. I'm doing it his way. It's amazing how we can drive through the city and look at old, dilapidated homes, right? We look at homes and go, I'm not buying that one. It's expensive. I'm not going to buy it anyways. <laughs> but I'm not buying that. That's a, that just needs to be gone. whole thing, it's an eyesore. It should never be used again. But then, a restoration crew comes. And they can make all sorts of changes and bring that building back to be one of the best homes in the neighborhood. I mean, how many of you watch home renovation shows and home restoration shows? Do you have that? I think my wife has that channel. I don't know if that's an actual channel, but she watches these kinds of shows all the time just because of what people can do. And it's usually the same couple going to different homes saying, here's what we can do in this home and here's what we can do in this home. And the home buyer is going... I don't want this. This is a dump. And in the hands of the renovation restoration specialist, the value of that home is increased exponentially because it's saved. Did you know God is in the restoration business? That's what He'd love to do in our lives most of all, including allowing us to be sick so that we don't try to hide sin intentionally or unintentionally anymore. Because He'd love to fully forgive you. And He'd love to have a close personal relationship with you. And He'd love to use you for the kingdom. No matter what your sin has been, no matter how many times that sin has occurred, just don't hide it. God, God's forgiveness is truly the definition of freedom because we know we're not alone in life and we know that our life has an incredible purpose no matter what our life has been up to this point. They say confession is good for the soul. Confession's not just good for the soul. Confession is good for life. It's like the chains are gone because you've been set free. When we confess our sin, God fully forgives us. When we confess our sin, God fully 
uses us. The cost of confession is high, no question. Dealing with our sin, perhaps confessing it to one another, as we're told in the New Testament, in order to not sin again, those are hard things to do. They're very humbling and challenging, and sometimes people don't know what to do with that. But look at what you get if you pay the price to confess your sins. A close, personal relationship with God who says your guilt is gone. And your life becomes the ministry that He wants to give you regardless of your past. It doesn't matter what your life has been up to this point. It can be amazing right now. Choose to confess your sin, not hide it. Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes we're embarrassed by our sin. We're embarrassed by what people might think. We're embarrassed because we've stumbled again. We've embarrassed because we made commitments that said we will not click that link. We, we will not grab that bottle. We will not go for that needle. We will not kill ourselves at work and stress out our bodies and stress out our relationships. And yet here we are again. Lord, we always evaluate value by what we're willing to give up to get it. And confession sounds scary, especially when it consists of the changes that you want us to make in our lives. But the alternative is more expensive. And what you give us with the act of of confession, of repentance, is so much greater. We gain you. We are guilt-free because of you. The King of kings and Lord of lords sitting on the throne of heaven looks at us and sees the sacrifice of Jesus and says, that's enough. Your sin is paid for. You are free. And we can know you, we can know your protection, we can know your goodness, and you still choose to use us. You give us a ministry regardless of the sin that we have committed in the past. Each one of us can be a full ministry partner because you have a ministry in mind for us. It's not bigger than our relationship with you, but it's bigger than our sin if we confess it. So, Lord, just in this moment, I ask that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts. And in just this quiet moment, if there is anything we need to repent of, confess to you, would you bring that to our minds? So that we may lay it into your hands. Thank you 
that you are willing to forgive. And your forgiveness gives us so much. Draw near to us, I pray. Use us, I pray, freely and fully. Help us not to hide our sin. Help us to confess it. Your forgiveness gives such great value. It's not just good for our souls, it's good for our very lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.